you think about it, <clears throat> to know the future really is almost every human being's preeminent obsession. It likely started the first time that things sort of uh, went the way that you wanted them to. You know, you've got the, uh, an amazing windfall sale at work, or you got a bountiful harvest or something. For others of us, it happened when life didn't work out the way in which we wanted it to. You know, they got sick. She said she wanted to leave me. Um, I failed that class, whatever. But it really is amazing when you look at all of the predictive elements that we've created for ourselves. Uh, and they range all over the map from the magical, you know, um, you ever been to a tarot card reading? Or maybe checked your horoscope just in case. From the magical, though, even to the scientific. You know, we have these amazing sort of advanced computer models to predict the weather and regressive uh, 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 regression analysis to project financial market success. Either way, you can see that we stand amazed at people who seem to have some sight about the future that's better than what we can have. I read an article recently entitled, How Does Nate Silver Do It? Nate Silver is an author and a blogger at 538.com where he's developed all these really uncanny uh, uh, ability to predict political elections. He kind of made it on the map early on in 2008 when he accurately called 49 of the 50 states after making a small dent in the world of baseball statistics of all things. But now he's written a New York Times bestseller. He's got hundreds of thousands of people who read his blog. Last time I checked, he had like three and a half million followers on Twitter. Clearly, we are fascinated by people who can predict the future. Well, in the midst of the long list that we've been gathering this year of Jesus' ways in which he commends himself to us that would make us want to follow him, we add this morning to this, that Jesus was a prophet who knew how to look into the future. And he did so not for the purpose of temporary political gain or sort of a market strategy, but with our best interest at heart. Indeed, the best interest of humanity at heart which is why his predictions are so compelling. But what is that interest? What is it that Jesus has to say about your future that would make him something more interesting than, say, a fortune teller? Well, I think we can sum it up this way. Jesus is going to say to us that your destiny, your future, is inextricably tied up with your heart's deepest treasure. So much so that when that earthly treasure fails, as it certainly will do, Everything you have will fail with it. And in the passage that we just read this morning, Jesus' followers are warned in really the most dramatic way that there really is no choice but to follow him because every other way leads to destruction. Now, some of you are doing double takes at your passage this morning, thinking to yourself, where in the world is he getting that? I, I thought this passage was about the end times, you know, and, and about all the, but where are the predictive charts and the you know, the connections with all the things going on in the world and especially in the Middle East right now. This is standard Christian fare. I understand when people start talking about the future. And it's really hard not to sort of get sucked into these predictive schemes that American Christianity has been so obsessed with in terms of end-time scenarios in the last couple decades. If you were around 20 years ago, you saw the fever pitch that whipped up around the turn of the century, which was downright deafening. But I want to be clear uh, this morning that the theological tradition from which this church stands doesn't attempt to interpret these passages in any different way than we do all the rest of the passages in the gospel. 
In other words, this passage, I do think, says something about the end of time, but its themes are no different from the same themes that the Gospel of Luke has been dealing with from the very beginning. And so with that in mind, I want to look at what it means this morning to talk about Jesus' view of the future. And three ideas that I hope will help us sort of work through this passage. Number one, the temple will fall, Jesus says. Number two, the Son of Man will come. And number three, Jesus' followers will watch. Number one, he says the temple will fall. Look, there's no other place in the Gospel of Luke where the background of the passage is going to help you more to understanding this than this one. Because the whole conversation starts while they're walking through Herod's temple. And someone makes a comment that, it, you know, it's quite a building. Take a look at these noble stones. Stones, which, by the way, you can still see today. But Jesus hears something more than just architectural appreciation here. He sees behind the comment into the person's admiration of what's really in their heart. But in order to really sort of grasp this, you have to take a look, a closer look, at what the temple was to your average Jewish person during Jesus' day. And honestly, it would be a little bit hard to exaggerate the importance of the temple. You know, in addition to arriving some of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the edifice, edifice was gigantic in comparison to most of the things built at the time. Over time, the temple had come to take on a deeply personal, deeply religious significance to the Jews. The temple had begun as the place where literally heaven and earth intersected. God had met with their ancestors there. He sat enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. So since you were a child, you were regaled with stories of your ancestors about how God had showed up in the temple, instructed His people, and defeated their enemies. But somewhere along the way, this legitimate purpose of the temple had gotten traded out for a sense of national pride, a sense of ethnic superiority. And the temple had, in fact, become a physical representation of your inward allegiance, a pridefulness about the fact that they, and they alone, were the people of God. You know, the temple was supposed to be a place from which would flow living waters of grace that would draw all of the nations in. But Israel's rebellion combined with oppression from foreign uh, invaders had made them downright superstitious. You know, the temple meant that one day we were going to win. You know, God's going to enter His temple and blow the competition away. In other words, you want to know why I have confidence, this person would say? Look at this temple. That's where my confidence rests. And Jesus comes along and says, it's all coming down. Now, like I realize it's very easy for us to sort of condescend to ancient Near Eastern people because you think, oh, how quaint that people would look at a, at a physical edifice with that kind of emotional attachment. But after 20 years of living in Oxford, I, I think I've come to believe that we have our own temple here. You may not realize it, but it's, you know, the temple is located dead in the center of the Old Miss campus. The university spares no expense in keeping it beautiful and glorious actually spending a whole lot more year over year than we could ever spend on a new church building, I might add. <laughs> worship services are held six or seven times during the fall. Uh, the worshipers, or worshipers will don, you know, uh, uh, sort of a special, richly ornamented garments, bought especially for the occasion. There's even a liturgy, I would argue, to decide who will and will not be accepted in that area. Of course, the popular and social butterfly will be welcomed in, while those who are labeled awkward... We cast into the outer darkness, right? 
We call it the grove, <laughs> right? But it has really all of the emotional uh, trappings of the building upon which Jesus had called down judgment. I'm not knocking the grove, by the way. I, I, I was a member of a tent this fall, really. And I realize it's easy to think, oh, he's being cute up there talking about the grove. But you know, I don't know about that. You know, in 2012, there was a guy named Harvey Updike who was arrested for poisoning trees at one of the busy intersections in Auburn, Alabama, called Tumor's Corners. One of the trees didn't make it. Some of the others are still not sure about. But Updike was sentenced to three years in jail. I have yet to speak to an Auburn fan who thinks that that was enough for this man to serve, right? But I want you to think about that for a second, because I've done a little mental thought exercise. It's about imagining what would happen, what would happen if someone poisoned the trees in the grove. I dare say that like Mississippi would secede from the union again, should something like that actually come to pass. I mean, imagine the emotional impact of someone standing up in the grove this week and announcing, you know, when it's the lightest shade of green and the grass is coming up, I'm going to burn it all down and there'll be nothing left in its place. I mean, multiply that impact though, times a thousand and you'll see what Jesus was doing by pushing this, this, this prediction of the destruction of the temple. Jesus is saying the physical embodiment of your greatest treasure, it's all coming down. And what that meant was that their greatest treasure was going to be lost, which was what? It was this inner sense that they were special, that they were favored, that God's dealings with them in the past was a guarantee of his dealings with them in the future. The temple had become this giant metaphor of self-righteousness, an ethnic superiority of God's people. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. This is really important to remember because, in fact, Jesus' words became true. We know for a fact that in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was besieged and surrounded by the Roman army, headed by a general Tiberius Julius Alexander. For years prior to those years, though, there were wars and earthquakes and fear and malaise. Death and destruction of Jerusalem was, was virtually total. However, an ancient church historian, whose writings we still have by the name of Josephus, reported that the followers of Jesus had already left the city, having, and this is a quote, been warned in an oracle to flee the city. Hmm. In other words, these people, Jesus' followers, knew it was time to believe because they had been warned about when it was time to, time to leave. They took special care, I'm sure, of the pregnant ladies among them because they had been warned to do that as well. So look, I think this lets the cat out of the bag of where I'm going with all this because I simply am trying to submit to you that Luke 21 is describing events that happened within the lifetimes of those who were listening to Jesus speak. And reading these passage, passages as descriptions of a still-yet-to-come future for us is treating fulfilled prophecy as if it's yet unfulfilled. Does that make sense? Now, I realize this creates another problem for a lot of people. They're saying, well, if the sermon Jesus taught was just for those people, then what application does it have for us? Well, well Jesus is communicating truths that will continue to repeat themselves throughout human history. In other words, Jesus is saying to every generation, not just his, beware of your spiritual safe places. Any pursuit, any gift, any family comfort, any degree of physical health, any career, 
uh, any one of your offspring, every spouse, any place where you might be tempted to build a haven of spiritual rest outside of Jesus, it's all coming down. Not one stone will be left on another, he says. Look, Jesus is warning his people about the spiritual temples that they build and worship that aren't him. Why the warning? Because they're going to fail you. Because our money dissolves, our families die, children move away, spouses disappoint. It's all coming down. And on that day, Jesus says, how will you stand? Imagine there's a bird who finds a tree to build her nest in. She feels very comfortable. But on one day, she's shaken. She looks down and sees a lumberjack who's chopping away at the tree. Very quickly, she gathers what she can and races to the next tree and builds again. But then again, she looks down and there's the lumberjack chopping away. And it happens again and again and again until she finally begins to build her nest in the rock, in a place that can't be moved, that won't be moved. Look, Jesus is saying, I am the temple that you've been waiting for. I am what this was pointing to. I am now where heaven and earth intersect. Don't miss the reality of the prophecy when the fulfillment is standing right in front of you. Which makes a great transition to the second point. Jesus says the temple will fall and everyone after it. But secondly, he says, the Son of Man will come. Because I realize some of you are scratching your heads right now because verses 25 through 28 seem clearly to describe Jesus' second coming in the end of the world, right? He's talking about signs and the heavens and the moon and, and the distress of nations being thrown into perplexity. What's he talking about? Well, again, in the interest of transparency, I don't think that Jesus is referring to some event in our distant future. I think Luke does talk about Jesus' second coming, but you don't get that information until the first chapter of his second book that he teaches, that he writes, called the book of Acts. But he's not talking about that here. Look, let's go back to our history lesson of the year before 70 AD. 69 AD saw some of the most tumultuous state of confusion that the Roman Empire had ever known. In one year, there were four emperors that came to power and then were deposed. Started with Nero, went to Otho, Vitellius, and finally with Vespasian. Over and over again, with each one bringing more violence and murder and civil war. But the point is this, when that kind of national upheaval goes on, the effect of it on people is emotionally catastrophic. Pain people experience from that. Listen to the people who talk about what it was like to live through the end of the apartheid regime in South Africa. You know, psychologists talk about the emotional effects of living under oppression, that there's mass humiliation, a disruption of family life, even, even stunted brain development they've discovered, widespread malnutrition, mental breakdowns, suicides. And then suddenly, it all comes to an end. It just doesn't do justice to the emotion of that event to simply report that it happened, right? If you were describing it, you'd probably struggle to communicate the emotional impact that it had and the fact that you were freed. Well, as it turns out, ancient Near, ancient Near Eastern authors struggled to communicate the impact in the same way. But they had a literary device that was at their disposal that would give their rhetoric a little more punch. Theologians refer to it as prophetic language. 
It's a kind of speech that employs these fantastic, often catastrophic images that are filled with wild beasts and cataclysmic imagery. So prophetic, or what we might even call apocalyptic language, was employed by the biblical authors when they were trying to get at the deep emotion behind an event. And my premise is that that's what Jesus is doing when he talks about the Son of Man coming. You know, imagine that you're in a counseling case with someone who's just, whose spouse has just left them. And they describe what they're going through. And they say, you know, when she left, I just died on the inside. Now, do they mean that their heart stopped beating and their brain function shut down? No. They're saying that it was devastating. It was deeply and powerfully hurtful to me. We speak in that way. So when Jesus starts to talk about the fall of Jerusalem, he chooses a description that was colorful and fantastic. But not only that, it actually would have been familiar with, to anyone in his audience who knew their Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is referring to two places in the book of Isaiah, chapter 13 and chapter 34, that in those places actually are used to describe the fall of Babylon and Edom. Look, y'all, these were giant nation states during the time of Isaiah that were in the, the Jewish people's collective history. And when they fell, it was earth-shattering, world-shaking events in their emotional history, which is the reason why he starts talking about a dark sun and a quenched moon and stars falling from the sky. There's just no other way to communicate it. Again, let me just put it baldly. I do not believe that Jesus is describing the end of the world here, though many in Jerusalem might have wished that it was at that time. What was ending was their understanding of life, the place of their souls resting, their their true sense of home. They were to be judged. And God was blotting them out for a combination of injustice within the house of Israel and violence towards those on uh, on the outside of the household of faith and for the crucifixion of Jesus, the very Son of God. In other words, they had failed to obey God's call to be the light of the world. So in verse 27, he says that at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, come on, Les. Surely that is talking about Jesus' second coming, but not so fast. Look, it's a really important rule of thumb that when you come to a passage of Scripture that you're not exactly sure what it means, you don't trust your own instincts to discern the meaning. Well, of course, we know that X, Y, and Z is what it means here. That's actually not a faithful way to interpret the Bible. Rather, what you do is you compare Scripture to Scripture. In other words, you see how it's used elsewhere and see if it's clear there and see how it was used in its original context. Well, as it turns out, the phrase, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, is a quote from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And in that context, the Son of Man is not coming to earth He's actually coming to his father on his heavenly throne. Don't believe me? We'll hear it. In my vision, this is Daniel, right? In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite designation for himself, by the way. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days. That's his father. And was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now look, with Daniel 7 kind of ringing in your ears, 
Hopefully you now can see why Jesus looks at his followers and says, hey, straighten up, lift your heads. In verse 28, because our redemption is finally at hand. Look, Jesus is not talking about a future redemption, but the redemption that came when he had all authority in heaven and earth given to him. Remember Matthew 28, verse 18? When Jesus, after his resurrection, stands up and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It was the resurrection and ascension that when Jesus approached the Ancient of Days. Now look, before we move on to our last point, why would that be encouraging? We'll ask this question. Why is Jesus approaching his Father's throne? What's he doing there? Well, to state it simply, Jesus is approaching the Ancient of Days to argue your case before his Father. He's going as your advocate because he's died. And he's risen again from the dead. And because he has, he's not going to his father to plead mercy for you. He's actually going to his father to plead your innocence. How can he do that? Because he is innocent and I am in him. That's the plea that he makes. More on that in the weeks to come. You got to come back for that. It's going to be great. Look, Jesus is going to, sort of to his Father to establish the one rock upon which you can build your life and know that it won't pass away. College is going to end. Family members and spouses are going to die. Careers will fail to fulfill. Old age creeps up on us all. But Jesus says, my kingdom will never end. Jesus says, you can build your life on that and never have to fear what comes tomorrow. So the temple will fall, the Son of Man will come, and briefly, thirdly, and finally, Jesus' followers will watch. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, Jesus tells us to watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. And I'm not sure Jesus could be talking to people in Oxford, Mississippi, more than he does here when he says that what will weigh your heart down and lull you into this false sense of security in life is drunkenness and dissipation. I really love how balanced the Bible is when it comes to the good gifts God gives us. And, and alcoholic beverages used in moderation, the psalmist says, will, will gladden the hearts of men. But when my temples begin to fall and I start to lean on that drink to dull the pain of sort of feeling socially awkward or feeling empty on the inside, that begins to weigh down the heart, Jesus says. In other words, it makes my depression worse doesn't fix anything. Why? Well, you can see it in the next word Jesus uses, because of dissipation. The word dissipation comes from a Latin word that means to spread thin. When Gandalf comes to see the elderly Bilbo Baggins in the Fellowship of the Ring, Bilbo has long been in possession of the Ring of Power. He started to call it his precious. But in an unguarded moment, he he says that he doesn't feel right. I'm old, Gandalf. I don't look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart of hearts. Why, I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean, like butter that's been scraped over too much bread. No, that can't be right. I need a change or something. Like how many times have you answered the cordial question, hey, how are you doing? With some form of, I'm busy, busy. I think these are the cares of life that Jesus is talking about. We drink too much, way too often, because we're medicating. 
We're trying to silence that, that placelessness inside of us. We've built up temples like the grove in secret places that we desperately hope will hold us together. But look, Jesus' invitation for us this morning is to live a watched life. He wants us to stay awake, praying. Why does he say that? Because the inertia of your heart will pull you to an unexamined life. To ignore that voice that's, that's maybe a little bit convicting. To stay active, you know, push the negative thoughts out. To binge another show. I mean, is there any more vivid description of modern life than we are as distracted as we can be, even with amusements beyond measure? But when you make your hearts only rest the finished work of Jesus, he's saying, then you don't have to hide. (laughs) And you stay watchful for anything that might raise itself up as a temple in your heart. We come to have to pray our way into who we really are. We attend church not because it's a nice place full of nice people who are nice to me, though it may be that. No, I attend church so that I can watch, (laughs) so that I can pray and be reminded as forgetful as I am of how Jesus stands before his Father for me and advocates for me. This is all that I have that won't go away, Jesus is saying. Look, y'all, if the statistics are to be believed... We are one of the most depressed generations that America has ever produced. Suicide rates are skyrocketing. When was the last time you despaired? I mean, despaired of your life. Maybe you feel like Bilbo. Maybe you need a change or something. I think our passage is inviting you today to change that that, that something to someone. That is... The invitation from Jesus is that he's one who can predict the future. He's seen into your future through his divine sovereignty, and he sees all of your idols failing you. He sees all of the temples coming down and not one stone being left on another. And he's inviting you this morning to say that the only safe rock on which to build your life is him. And so the only question is, is will we do it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we can't answer that question without acknowledging that you must help us. You must give us the grace to embrace you, to see you that way, because our, our vision is clouded. We don't see very clearly. So would you fall upon us in your Spirit's power and make us to see in a way in which we may not have. Some of us have been terrified of our futures. Some of us have felt really self-righteous about them. But either way, Father, it's only you. It's only a life that is built upon knowing you. They could ever hope for anything for their future. Would you build that in us this morning? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.